Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to talk about the Chomsky-Foucault debate in order to kind of elaborate on their arguments and to provide my own musings on it without adding too much of my own stuff because you're not really here for me, you're here for what you know these, these philosophers have to say. So before jumping into that, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy. If you want to help me out, you can like, share, subscribe. If you're new here, be sure to do all those things. But let me tell you that, hi, I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts in a way that makes them accessible, philosophical ideas, so that they can be accessible to you, at least with the amount of knowledge that I have on that subject. So if you know you like what I do, I'd like for you to come back. So uh, like, share, subscribe, and then you can see whenever I release videos every week, sometimes twice a week. If you found me on YouTube, you'd be able to find the podcast version where there shouldn't be any ads pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave a review. Five stars would help me out a lot uh, and help me work that algorithm a little bit. And yeah, if you want to help me out monetarily, you can do that via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. And yeah, I don't want to waste any more of your time with that stuff. Let's jump into this debate. Now first, urban legends. Apparently Foucault didn't actually want to do this debate, and he was apparently going to be paid in hash to do it, and, and he was going to wear a wig, uh, a comical wig. I don't know if that's true, I don't want to pay any credence to rumors, but they, they're rumors, they're out there. A lot of people are saying. Anyways, that, that's there. Now, as far as the actual substance goes, and I just had a conversation with a friend of mine, Paul, where he put it, well, he said that during this debate, they're really talking past one another. If anyone's listened to it, you'd know that they just seem to be saying different things. That is, they're just come at it with their own approach and don't find the, a real common ground. Now, with that being said, I'm still gonna run through their overall arguments, kind of the points they try to bring up, and also, you know, the points of contact, if there are any, or points where they really should have given more thought to what was said. So Chomsky starts out by saying that it's kind of a mysterious thing that humans have the capacity to learn a language. So when we're young, we don't actually get taught or sat down to learn a language. We just exist among people who are speaking. And through that, we have the capacity to adopt the language that is being spoken around us. Now what that means for Chomsky is that humans have a kind of internal, natural propensity to learn language that is really unparalleled in other beings and other animals that don't have that capacity to learn a very complicated language like humans. Now if anyone here is familiar with Deleuze and Guattari, you'd know that they have their own big criticism of this, but I'm just borrowing that for now. Let's just focus on what Chomsky's on about and Foucault's response. So Foucault responds to him essentially by saying that he's suspicious of any such designation of a kind of human nature or a kind of natural human propensity to learn language. Foucault is like, what ideas are necessary in order for us to arrive at that conclusion, in order for us to extract such a conclusion? So one of the things that for anyone familiar with Foucault's work, would be that he is quite skeptical or suspicious of this idea called man, to use the kind of regrettable term, or human. Where in the order of things, he makes a very good case that this idea of the human, as it is constructed in the way that we often think of, you know, we think of uh, a person standing upright, having certain linguistic capacities, the attachment of the idea of a human that could then be transposed to all other 
humans that fit these criteria is a pretty new thing. We didn't have that for all of time before then. So the very science upon which Chomsky is forming his idea is predicated upon an assumption that this idea about the human is universal and it is timeless, like we've always had this. And humans can all be understood, even throughout all the course of history, in their capacity to learn a language. Now just in my own, for my own part, I am in part a little suspicious of this attachment of a certain, or a certain privileging of language in this way. Now humans, when we're quite young, we're never taught how to walk. You know, we see people walking and we, we try to emulate that and match it. Why do we not ascribe this uh, ability to walk with a kind of innate human capacity to learn how to walk or to mirror the world? And it's kind of strange that Chomsky kind of focuses, at least here, exclusively on language. But in any case, that's just me. Now, the next point that Foucault makes is actually comes out of a misunderstanding of what Chomsky is on about. So Chomsky extracts or extrapolates from his idea that every single human being yearns to learn to some extent. They yearn to learn language and they have the kind of natural capacity to do that, to learn a language. Now he extracts from that, extrapolates to say that there is this human propensity for creativity, for burgeoning into newness, for allowing ourselves to expand into new horizons. And this sets the tone for science making a science possible, but we're going to get into that in a little more detail later on. But Foucault interprets that to mean, like, when we're thinking about creativity or geniuses or anything like that, he takes it to mean like a Newton or a Galileo, you know, people that really stood out in the course of human history in moving human history forward. Now Chomsky responds by saying, no, he really wants us to be thinking about an innate capacity for creativity, not these exemplary demonstrations of creativity. And for him, a science becomes possible when this creativity is put in place in an external operation in the world. So when we find a way to match what we are seeing in the world and are able to construct certain operations to understand that world that match, that have a kind of coherence with our internal structures that foster creativity possibility that foster our innate drive to learn more and more and more. When that happens, when there's a congruence between the two, then a science can be said to emerge. Now Chomsky gives us this idea and he doesn't really elaborate, but it's a very complicated idea because when we think of a science, let's say physics, for example, uh, physics that is applied to understanding space travel, it's difficult to see how that in any way mirrors what can be found innately in humans, if there's anything innate at all. So I think we can interpret this rather to mean that in, in my mind, and I really want to encourage people to you know, jump in on this in, in, in the comment section, but what he might also mean is that when we develop a way of looking at the world that encourages consistent thought, that encourages questioning, that encourages tearing down barriers and opening up new ones, moving past limits, recognizing limits, but then seeking to circumvent them, then we have a science. Whereas otherwise we just have like a religion that just tells us how to think and that's it. So we can think of his association between uh, 
a thing in the outside world, this kind of science that we form through our observations of the outside world and this internal structure in that way, in how they both foster our yearning for creativity, for newness, for spontaneity in a lot of ways as well. Now, Foucault responds to this by saying that he's suspicious as well of this idea of creativity, where for him, there's no real creative act. All acts are going to be determined in part by the social dynamics in which we find ourselves. They could be determined by, you know, biology, by evolutionary, you know, our evolutionary impetus. Like humans don't have the capacity to run um, 30 miles an hour, at least maybe not. I don't know. Maybe someone can do it. Uh, whereas for some animals that is possible, maybe like a gazelle. I don't know how fast they run, whatever. You get the point. We are bound by certain limitations that restrict the possibility for creativity. And so even this, you know, the poss if we accepted Chomsky's thesis that, you know, humans all have this kind of creative capacity, we must demand under what restrictions such a creativity is allowed in, in let's say, a social setting. So Foucault is really starting to push Chomsky on some of these assumptions that kind of underlie his thought. They exist underneath his thought and that hold it up. And so he takes this to mean, or he takes this idea and runs with it to say that science does not emerge when there is a, a kind of congruence between an external operation outside of ourselves that fosters creativity and possibility and newness and a congruence between that or a kind of agreement between that and our internal structure. Rather, a science emerges because power dictates what a science can look like. It is restricted by certain, in, insert any kind of Foucauldian jargon you'd like here, determined by regimes of power, by uh, loci of knowledge. So for Foucault, science doesn't just emerge uh, kind of sponta spontaneously. It is rather the product of all previous history that, and let me, let me add an asterisk here, it doesn't move in a kind of uh, positivistic direction where it goes from I know you're seeing this backwards, but like like this, from left to right in a, in a kind of linear fashion. Rather, for Foucault, what happens is that science emerges by borrowing certain elements of the past while foreclosing, but while shutting away, the word he uses is, is occulting. In, in French, it's more common than, than in English, I believe, but like it's to, to hide or to, to cache, to hide certain ideas while allowing some to emerge. And for texts of his that really go into this madness and civilization, when he looks at the ways in which the mad retreated, it really demonstrates that the so-called Age of Enlightenment wasn't a total departure from previous historical manifestations of uh, treating so-called madness. Instead, it was very much an extension of that and a transformation of what had already existed rather than something totally new, which is what Chomsky seems to ascribe to science as being something that is removed from the burden of history, removed from various obstacles like institutions, coercive institutions that try to limit possibility. For Foucault, he actually says like, in fact, it is these institutions that make science possible. They are the ones that determine what is a possible science, like linguistics, like uh, biology, like physics, anything like that is determined by various institutions that allow it to emerge. Now, we go from here to talking about politics or what kind of Chomsky imagines for, his, for the future and what his theory points to, and that is 
pointing to what he calls anarcho-syndicalism, which is a system that fosters innate human capacity for creativity that is not burdened, that is not dictated by what he calls coercive institutions. That is, it is a system that fosters this innate creativity that he has set up in the first place at the beginning of this debate. Now, Foucault is extremely skeptical. Like, he's like, no, I, I cannot, with any good faith, pretend to sketch out a system or to say, like, this, the proper system will be, will look like X and then, and then that's it. Foucault is a lot more cautious. And I know in the way that I'm framing this, it might very well seem like I'm on Foucault's side here, and I am, but I really want to try to give nuance to this. So Foucault's suspicious of the way that Chomsky frames a better society as being one that is free from coercive institutions. And the reason for that is that Chomsky focuses pretty exclusively on like uh, media institutions, on government institutions, military institutions, where Foucault is, wants to really expand that to say that, you know, it's not just those institutions that are oppressive or repressive. The family is extremely repressive. Schooling is extremely repressive. Religion, you know, you name it. You go from there and you, everything is going to work in favor of the system at hand. So when Chomsky constructs or sketches this system that is free from coercive institutions, he is forgetting in part that there are all of these other institutions that exist and proffer up that very system. So even if we got rid of all those so-called coercive institutions, we'd still be left with these other really repressive ones that operate to define the boundaries of normativity and to punish those that refuse or are unable to abide by what is considered normal or proper. And so it just seems kind of naive to say, oh, well, what we are doing or what we can do is get rid of these institutions, you know, X, Y, and Z, government, uh, military, police, and then things will just be peachy green after that. That's just totally naive for Foucault. Instead, he maintains that the task is to critique and to really be pointing to the limits of each of these institutions in their capacity to foster even the thing that Chomsky's talking about, like creativity, where we can't really say that that is fostered in uh, the nuclear family setting. Like that is certainly not the case. In, in fact, it's only a certain kind of creativity that is fostered there, one that is predisposed to uh, socializing people to keep, you know, keep the nuclear family dynamic going, uh, you know, on and on and on, for example. Now, Chomsky has a good point in response to this. He says it would be a shame, though, to say that we can't try to make our world better or a world that works better for us as humans. And he's still maintaining this idea that humans have this kind of innate capacity and it's up to government officials, it's up to whoever, ac academics, intellectuals, to find a way to foster that. Because the end goal is to have a system that matches this internal human structure that is natural, supposedly. Now, in order to kind of refute that once again, Foucault's like this idea of human nature that you're modeling the system off of has been used in the past to motivate certain, uh, cer certain revolutionary actions, like in the case of Soviet Russia, where Foucault says quite accurately that the idea of human nature that the Soviets used to justify their going into power was a bourgeois model of human nature. And he cites Mao saying that there is 
bourgeois human nature, and then there's proletarian human nature. And these two things are fundamentally different. So Foucault uses this not to say, not to advocate for a kind of class uh, warfare per se, but to demonstrate that this idea of human nature is pretty tenuous. It's, it's really volatile and it has been used for really uh, oppressive means. And so we can't just naively deploy it like Chomsky does to say like, oh, well, we have to craft a system that fosters this human nature because we have to recognize it has been done before and the outcomes were not good. That is, it only reflects a certain idea of human nature that most often reflects those in power. Despite this, Chomsky's still sticking to his guns and he says, well, it would still be wrong to recognize that even if a system, even if our current system isn't properly just, that doesn't mean we still don't have the capacity to tell right from wrong. So he provides the example of someone sitting at a traffic stop in their car and they see someone pull out a, a, a gun or a weapon or something to attack a crowd of people. And it would be against the law for that person to drive through the traffic stop uh, or to drive through the red light or whatever to, let's say, hit that person to stop a crime or a, a murder from occurring. The person that did that would be right in what they did, even though what they did was illegal. So Chomsky uses this argument to point to the limits of Foucault's argument, where Foucault says power determines uh, what is right and wrong. You know, this state, uh, various other institutions determine what is right and wrong. And so we can't just uh, think that we actually know what right and wrong is because it's always going to be determined by these sites of power. Chomsky uses this example to say like, well, it seems in that case, a human has the capacity to tell for themselves what is right and wrong. And they aren't just determined by those in power, where it's not just like intellectuals telling people how to exist or politicians or whatever, but people do have a capacity to say no and to recognize right from wrong. Now, does Chomsky take, it's a good point, it's absolutely a good point, but does Chomsky take it a little too far? Like by using this very extreme example, maybe. How often do things like that happen? For the most part, people just keep put their heads down and not do anything about anything in order to just follow the law. And if we use the argument of numbers here, it seems like Foucault is winning that, that side of the argument, but it's still, it's still a strong point that he makes. And so Foucault responds by saying that Chomsky seems to be coming at this as though he is himself like transcendent, like as though he's floating above everyone else from the perspective of a kind of pure ideal of justice. And he's able to say, well, in that case, that person was doing what was right by stopping this crime from occurring, this like murder or whatever from occurring, which is all well and good. But that was Chomsky setting up the conditions for the realization of his own affirmation of his own theory, his own proposal by laying out this, this possible argument. Now, in reality, things are never so, so cut and dry as being like there is good and, and evil and then that's it. Like there's right and wrong and that's it. Nothing is ever that, that, that clear. But Chomsky really wants to dissuade us from thinking that he himself thinks he's better than everyone else or like sitting in this, on this cloud being able to pass judgment on anything. And he delivers a really strong blow and he says, well, Foucault, like, why do you do what you do? Like, why do you write these books that you do discussing power, discussing regimes of power, discussing uh, subjugated knowledges, unless you felt like people were being treated unjustly, unless you felt like power was bad and power needed to be challenged. 
And Foucault doesn't really have the time to fully respond to that. Uh, he just says that he needs to, us to maintain that these ideas that Chomsky's uh, whole philosophy rests on, like human nature, creativity, justice, should all be questioned because they, they it's not so easy to determine what any of those things are. But in part, you know, Chomsky does have a very good point. Foucault essentially responds by saying that, well, it's always going to be power that determines what is right and wrong. And those that are marginalized experience this power in ways that, that encourage themselves to try to usurp that power. And so in part, and dare I say, Foucault is kind of like a utilitarian if, if we can attach any kind of uh, possible impetus behind his his project that doesn't ascribe it to an idea of like pure justice or him subscribing to the idea of justice in that Foucault recognizes that these sites of power represent the minority position and that it's better to side with the majority because while we don't know what is real justice, what is the right thing to do, the right system to construct, perhaps we can try to make the system better for the most amount, the highest amount, for the most people as possible in order to maximize um, access to the capacity to form knowledge, access to representation, and so on and so forth. And yeah, that more or less covers the bulk of it. There's, there's more to it than that, of course, and I'd love to hear what anyone else has to say anything that I may have excluded or that I maybe mischaracterized. I'd really love to hear about it. But yeah, on that note, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, leave comments or reviews on any podcast platform you're using, and I'll catch you next time. Take care.